This is Ron Stockton. It's now two weeks before the 2022 midterm elections. This is perhaps the most significant midterm election in a long time, and also the one that's the hardest to predict. The Democrats hold a slim lead in the House of Representatives and are tied in the Senate, with the Vice President able to break the tie. This has allowed the Biden administration to push through some significant legislation. If there is a small shift to put the Republicans in control of either or both bodies, we can anticipate a dramatic shift in national politics. Republicans have spoken of impeachment hearings for the Attorney General or even for President Biden, of a national ban on abortion, and of a reduction of support for the Ukrainians in their war with Russia. They would almost certainly abolish the January 6th committee that is investigating the insurrection. If you are a Republican, you must be very excited at what is coming. If you are a Democrat or a supporter of women's health rights or a supporter of Ukraine or someone worried about the Russian intentions, you must be seeing this as a time of great peril. I want to discuss with you a well-known pattern in off-year elections. That is that the president's party always loses seats in the House of Representatives. There's plenty of evidence of this pattern. Bush the son and Obama and Trump all took significant losses in such elections. Bush lost 31 seats in 2006, Obama lost 63 seats in 2010, and Trump lost 41 seats in 2018. The vote swings from the last presidential election were 8% down for Bush, 9.1% down for Obama, and 8.6% down for Trump. Those were big setbacks. Ironically, the pattern in the Senate seems to operate on its own set of rules and does not follow the House pattern. We can often predict the House pattern by looking at national polls. These polls seem not to work with Senate races where the issues are more focused upon the high-profile personalities running for those seats. But let's focus on the House for a minute. Why does this pattern exist? There are three patterns I want to discuss with you. I will call these reduced turnout, surging turnout, and realignment. The most common pattern <clears throat> has to do with reduced turnout. Let me explain that. It has to do with the fact that the party identifiers and so-called independents are very different from each other. Party identifiers tend to be better informed, be loyal to their party, to think that there are important issues involved in elections. They are ideologically consistent, tend to know their position on major issues, and always vote. Of course, they vote for their party, obviously the right party. Those who do not identify with the party tend to be less informed. They have no party loyalty and vote sporadically. They often get motivated by some personality or issue that gets them excited. Often it is an issue that is not really central to the overall political system or to an ideological direction. And there is always the danger of what I call excitational manipulation, stirring up voters with moral outrage around some fake issue. The simple fact is that party identifiers tend to vote in every election. Non-identifiers vote if there is a high-profile election, such as a presidential election. Okay, let's think about why this is important in terms of what happens in the off-year election. Suppose you're a given presidential candidate. Uh, suppose in a given presidential election, there are two candidates. 
The day before the election, candidate X has 47% support and candidate Y has 46%. There are 7% who claim to be undecided. Sad to say, those 7% are going to determine the outcome of the election. Ouch! Did I just say that the least informed people will determine who wins the election? Well, I may be exaggerating for the sake of the example, but not by much. Those 7% are less likely to vote, but let's suppose they do. And let's assume that they break in favor of candidate Y. After all, candidate Y is much better looking than candidate X. Remember that candidate Y has 46% in the final polls. But what if the undecideds break in favor of Y by 5% to 2%? That means that candidate Y will win with 51% of the vote. But what if they break in favor of candidate X? That means X will win with 52% of the vote. Whatever the outcome, break out the champagne. Our guy won. Hooray. But wait, in two years, there will be a midterm election, and those voters who gave your candidate the margin of victory will probably not show up at the polls. Remember, they're not nearly as interested in politics as those who identify with a party. Two years later, someone will say to them on Wednesday morning, what do you think of the outcome of the election? They will say, election? What election? I thought we voted two years ago. For those listening to this podcast, who probably are very interested in elections, it may be a stunning shock to you to realize that there are large numbers of people out there who are simply indifferent to what is going on in the political world. And that disease is widespread. If you ask people who just voted to name their member of Congress, half of them are not sure. Your two senators, the governor, blank stares. Who cares? These politicians are all the same. They're all crooks. They should all be in jail. All of you have heard this kind of statement. Let me give you some numbers to illustrate the pattern. May I suggest that you hit pause and get a piece of paper? I'm going to give you some numbers. I know some of you have a mind like a steel trap and can remember such things, but I'm one of those who can't. So if you're like me, why not pause so you can write down what I'm about to tell you? It'll help. Okay, are you back? Here we go. These are figures from the past two decades. In 2004, Bush the son was president. Turnout in that election was 60.1%. Two years later, turnout was 40.4%. And Bush lost 31 seats in the House. In 2008, Obama was elected president and turnout was 62.5%. Let me just note that African-American turnout was exceptionally high that year. There were five-hour lines to vote in black neighborhoods in Chicago and people just stuck it out. But two years later, turnout was 41% and the Democrats lost 63 seats. Obama was not on the ticket and turnout dropped dramatically, not just in the African-American community, but across the board except for those who were passionate party identifiers. In 2012, Obama was up for re-election and turnout popped back to 58%. That was good, but nearly 5% below his first run. I guess people were just not as excited. Then two years later, in 2014, turnout dropped to 42% and Republicans picked up another 13 House seats. They also captured the Senate with 54 Republican seats. Back in 2010, the Democrats had come on to this, had held on to the Senate 
in spite of their catastrophic house setbacks. But this time the outcome was different. And for those of you who care about the Supreme Court, this made Mitch McConnell the Senate Majority Leader and enabled him to freeze the Scalia court vacancy so he could put Brett Kavanaugh onto the court. This was unprecedented, blocking an appointment. But there was a lot at stake, and McConnell wanted a pro-life justice. In 2016, we began to see something surprising, something that makes us political scientists hesitate before we talk about historic patterns. At a faculty forum in the 2016 election, I said what I had said in early events, that this time, but this time it was wrong. I said that our best guess is that if a state has gone for a given party for several elections in a row, they will probably do so again. The reason is that there are long-term forces at work. All that storm und drunk, all that excitement of the campaign really doesn't change the outcome. It just gets the troops excited so they will vote. Well, 2016 was different. We had Donald Trump leading the Republican Party. Turnout was 59.2%. Several states shifted to Trump by the narrowest of margins. In Michigan, Trump carried the state by 10,704 votes. And suddenly, Donald J. Trump, reality host and bombastic, litigious New York City real estate mogul, often accused of corruption, who had declared bankruptcy twice and been accused of sexual misconduct by a dozen females, was in the Oval Office. Two years later, we had a new ball game, electorally speaking. Turnout was 53%. If you've been writing down those numbers the way I suggested, you know this is higher than it had been for a long time. In fact, 10 percentage points above any of the numbers I've been discussing. The Democrats picked up 41 seats. But surprisingly, I was surprised anyway, the Republicans picked up two seats in the Senate. That illustrates the point I made earlier, that the Senate races do not follow the same pattern as the House races in those off-year elections. So that brings us to 2022. Remember that in 2020, Trump was defeated by a 66.9% turnout. That number was stunning. It was four points above the Obama electoral turnout, which had surprised those of us who track such things. Obviously, Trump was changing the whole political system. Wait, did I see someone in the back row raise a hand? What was that? President Trump said that in the city of Detroit, 135% of all eligible voters voted, and that was how Michigan was stolen from him. Oh, Lord, why hast thou visited this abomination upon thy servant, Ronald? Okay, let me address this. No, we did not have 135% of Detroit voters actually voting. No, there were no shipments of votes brought in in the middle of the night in Detroit garbage trucks. No, Republican poll watchers were not banned from the arena where votes were being counted. They were there side by side with Democrats watching the tabulations. And in spite of what President Trump said, all votes were not counted on Tuesday night. It takes a long time to count votes in a big city like Detroit. The votes counted on Wednesday were not fake votes on Chinese bamboo paper. They were all legal votes that had been submitted on time with verified signatures. And why do you keep waving your hand around? You're beginning to irritate me. (sighs) The fact is that the turnout in Detroit was around 55%, a bit low, actually, to be honest. 
President Trump was either engaging in his usual irresponsible exaggeration when he said those things, or he had been smoking some funny tobacco. Since he says he doesn't smoke, I have a suspicion of what was motivating him. Okay, we've wasted enough time on this issue. The fact is that in 2020, we had record turnout. Now we need to think why that might be, and what it might tell us about what will happen in two weeks in the 2022 midterm elections. I told you there were three reasons why the president's party will typically lose seats in the off-year election. One is differential turnout, which we've just discussed. But there are two other possible explanations based on past patterns. One is surging turnout. The other is what we call realignment. We've seen some evidence of surging turnout. Suddenly, large numbers of voters turn up at the polls who had not been expected. And why is that? Maybe it is because the voters suddenly believe there's a lot at stake. Maybe they're not as bored as they usually are in an off-year election. Maybe some issue has gotten them excited. Maybe there has been an effort to organize them and motivate them. All of these things seem to be happening, seem to be happening in 2022, this very year. The one issue that is high profile is the fact that five ideologues on the Supreme Court voted to overturn Roe versus Wade. I have two podcasts on that topic, one on the decision itself, one on the Mississippi case that the court was considering. If you're interested in the topic, these podcasts will give you quite a bit of information and insight. But today, as we rush towards the election in two weeks, we see two patterns regarding this issue. First, 70% of all Americans believe overturning Roe v. Wade was a bad decision. Those rights had been in place for 49 years, and while many of the country do not like the idea of abortion, by overwhelming numbers, they do not want to criminalize it. There's also a sense that somehow this is an assault on the rights of women to decide their own future. It came as a shock to Republicans that married white women in the suburbs of Atlanta voted for Biden and flipped Georgia into the Democratic camp just two years ago. Those of us who study voting patterns know that married white women tend to be Republican, but that single white women tend to be Democrats. But married white women voting Democratic and in the South, the South, the Republican base, that was stunning. Here's what we don't know. Today, when you ask people what they consider a priority issue in this election, they tend to cite the economy and the future of our democracy. Republicans tend to think that the economy is in the toilet. Democrats to think, can, tend to think it's doing okay. Regarding our democracy, <coughs> excuse me, Democrats tend to think it is under siege. Republicans think it's doing fine. But only 9% of Americans think women's abortion rights are a priority issue. What does that mean? Does it mean they don't care? I said at a faculty forum on the election last night, they dragged me out of retirement for this event, that if the Supreme Court's decision had happened three weeks before the election, it would have made a significant difference. Interestingly, in their campaign advertisements, Democrats are missioning abortion rights. Republicans are running in the opposite direction. They talk about the economy, the border, crime in the streets, fentanyl, laced Hollywood candy, or anything but not abortion. I wonder, do Republican internal polls show them that this is a deadly issue for them? Maybe Democratic polls show the opposite. 
What I suspect is that everyone who is going to vote on the basis of this issue has already made up their mind. If so, are the Democrats just wasting their money? Or maybe they're trying to increase turnout. I guess we'll have to wait until the election to find out. What we do know is that with early voting starting in several states just this week, I'm thinking of Georgia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Texas, and a few other critical states, turnout is off the charts. Early voting in several states is already twice what it was in previous elections. Of course, we don't know how those people are voting, but I suspect there are techno-geeks looking at precinct-level data and saying, uh, boss, in our precincts, where we usually get 70% of the vote, the pattern is dot, dot, dot. Someone out there is probably losing a lot of sleep over what they are being told. And if married women shift permanently into the Democratic Party, that will change so much. And it might even mess up some marriages. And with that comment, let's turn to the third reason why the outcome might be different from what our models predict. This is what we call realignment. It means that a whole block of voters, not just a few, but a block, make a permanent shift from one party to another. This is not just people who get mad at their party and defect for the other candidate, but then come back the next election. These are people who collectively move away from their traditional party loyalty to another party loyalty. In my career, I have seen two of these shifts. Well, maybe three. One was the African-American vote, and one was the evangelical vote. Let's start with African-Americans. I know it will be surprising to some of you, but there was a long time, almost a century, when there was a significant block of black voters who were on the Republican side. There were a lot of reasons for this, but once upon a time, the Republican Party was the party of black rights. The Democrats, especially in the Senate, were in the grip of Southern senators, many of whom were overt racist and segregationists. When I moved to Michigan in 1967 to attend graduate school, I was so proud to live in such a progressive state. It was governed by an alliance of the UAW and moderate Republican Party members. Governor George Romney marched with civil rights demonstrators, and Governor Milliken, his successor, was even more progressive than Romney. Not surprisingly, in the 1960 presidential election, Nixon versus Kennedy, 32% of black voters went to Nixon, whose platform sounded very friendly to black voters. But then came 1964. In 1963, the Senate voted on the famous Civil Rights Act that ended segregation in public accommodations. From then on, black customers could go into a restaurant and order what everyone else ordered. They did not have to do it on a takeout basis, getting their food and leaving without sitting down in a booth. They could sit down and eat if they wanted to. That was amazing. The Southern senators, who were all Democrats, voted almost as a block against that bill. Senator Strom Thurmond engaged in a record-setting 24-hour filibuster speech against the bill. And outside of the South, every single senator, Democrat or Republican, voted in favor of that bill. Well, Every single one except one, Senator Barry Goldwater of Arizona voted no. He said it was unconstitutional. We should leave that matter to the states. As I sit here in 2022, that argument, leave it to the states, sounds very familiar. It was exactly the argument that Justice Alito and Justice Kavanaugh and other Supreme Court justices used when they killed Roe v. Wade. 
What really changed the political dynamic, though, was not that single Republican senator, that one single Republican senator voted no, but that the very next year, the Republicans nominated Goldwater to be their candidate for the presidency. This action produced a legendary victory for Lyndon Johnson, but it also had a profound impact on the black community. Overnight, black voters decided that the unwelcome mat was out for them, and they moved en masse into the Democratic Party. In that year, 90% voted for Johnson. There was a black comedian at that time, Dick Gregory. I really liked him. He said that this shows that 10% of black voters have not figured out how to mark a ballot correctly. Well, Dick was having a little bit of fun, I guess. And since that year, the black vote has never dropped below 88% Democratic in a single presidential election. This gives the Democrats a solid leg up in any election. Everyone knows that Detroit and Chicago and Milwaukee and Philadelphia, which have black majorities, are automatically in the Democratic column. Oh, wait. Did I just list the places where Donald Trump alleged that there was massive voter fraud that cost him the election? Can you maybe see why Trump's appeal to the black vote, what do you have to lose, didn't work? The other major shift was of the evangelicals, or white conservative Christians, or whatever you want to call them. Let's not forget that they supported Jimmy Carter in 1976. They mostly voted their economic interests, not their religion. I grew up in that culture, and I never heard a single sermon that focused upon a political issue. We got our political views from our union, or from the candidates. A preacher telling us how to vote would have received serious pushback. But then the Republicans figured out that they could lure those people away if they would focus upon cultural issues. Abortion and gay marriage and protecting our kids from perverts became a campaign topic, became campaign topics. Whoever heard of such things being discussed in public? Growing up in a border state evangelical community, I'd never heard of this. But they began to pound on the abortion issue. And they reached out to conservative Catholics for the same reason. Suddenly, a shift began to occur. In the 1980 election, Reagan carried the conservative Christian vote. And it has continued in that camp ever since. Let me just diverge for a second to make an observation. It is not an original observation, but it is one that you probably have not heard before. Here it is. If evangelicals and African-Americans could stop fighting and get on the same side, they could transform America. These are the two abused stepchildren of American power and greatness, but they can't stop hurting enough to see that they share an interest in political transformation. Before I finish, I have to comment on the Catholic vote, the third realignment, I guess. The Catholic bishops used to be very much aligned with the progressive elements of this country. Colonel Dearden of Detroit was a perfect example, a civil rights activist and a supporter of progressive politics. But in recent decades, the Catholic bishops appear to have become linked to the right wing of the Republican Party. Right now, I'm receiving many Facebook messages from the bishops and their supporters telling me about how evil abortion is. And Catholic churches are posting signs out in front telling people how to vote on Proposition 3, which would restore the rights of women un from under Roe versus Wade. I have to say that the Catholic Church is seriously divided over this, with many Catholics walking away and others openly defying their bishops. 
And Pope Francis has expressed concern about the possibility of a schism in which the American church would simply go its own direction. This is so different from what it was when I started my career, when the Vatican was very much on the right and the American church was linked to social justice. That seems to have flipped. I've watched the efforts of demagogues to use fear and anger and distortion to manipulate people's minds and to use them politically. I'm not talking of those people who have honest positions on these issues. My own views are pretty much in the American mainstream. I don't like abortion, but I don't think it should be criminalized. And having discussed this matter with female friends and students, I do not feel I have the wisdom or moral authority to tell any female what is the right decision in such a case. What I'm talking about here are the political calculations of people who are concealing their true motives behind a smokescreen of pro-life horror stories. But let's get back to the topic of realignment. As I said, Republicans were shocked to realize in 2020 that white married females were moving into the Democratic camp, often in defiance of their husbands. If this is a permanent shift, then that surge of early voting that we are seeing this week will be bad news for the Republicans. But if that is a surge of white Trumpists, then it is bad news for the Democrats. I guess we're just going to have to wait.